I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think the most important thing for my generation, whether, you know, John Lewis is, is in Alabama, whether it's Jory Ladner and Joyce Ladner in Mississippi, or myself in New York, the murder of Emmett Till was, I mean, a singular moment for a whole generation. My name is Cortland Cox. I participated in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee organization from 1960 to 1967. During the early weeks of February 1960, the demonstrations that came to be called the sit-in movement exploded across the South. Even in New York, we all understood the question of race. If you were in high school, people try to tell you to take shop. Don't take the academic subjects because you're not gonna go anywhere with that. You had a place within the society. There's something deep down within me, moving me, that I could no longer be satisfied or go along with an evil system. You were at the bottom of a hierarchy. There was no place for you in the economic world. There were no models for you in the political world. African-Americans were second-class human beings. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Turnout. We had about 130 kids. This week on the podcast... Many of us didn't realize just how important our movement would grow to be. The power and drive of youth activism. I was 14 years old. I was a little eight-year-old girl. 15 and maybe 16 years old, something like that. From the right to vote, to climate protests, to Black Lives Matter, so many of the movements for change in this country have been led by young people. 
just being on the front lines with the people that look like me that's also fighting for their lives. We are tired. That also is the same age as me or younger. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. And trying to stay grounded. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. Say his name. John Floyd. Say his name. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? And now more than ever with all these protests, as long as they don't fizzle out, I feel like we can definitely make more of a difference. We want our freedom and we want it now. When you're 20-something, right, you don't understand all of the dangers. I mean, you, you know, you hear it, right, but it doesn't sink in. But we, we were very, very conscious of what we were doing, and we just kept moving forward. When he was a teenager, Cortland Cox learned of the lynching of a boy his same age in another state. It was a national tragedy that led Cortland like so many others, to join the civil rights movement. For me, the singular issue was the question of Emmett Till. I was 14 years old, and I remember it because, I, I, you know, I was reading it in Jet Magazine on the subway in New York. The thing that was important for, for the Black community was the Jet Magazine. That was our Facebook. That was our Twitter. That was where we got the news. And the decision of Emmett Till's mother to have his disfigured body on there, and it was in Jet Magazine, that was the most profound place that it could have been. It couldn't have, I mean, there was no newspaper could have done what Jet Magazine did. You found out about the Black community by reading Jet Magazine. We knew that if we did not break that system, then many more people would be killed. Many more people would be, you know, suppressed. Many more people would would not have a life uh, that they could pursue that men had any meaning to it. Let's say it was Emmett Till for John Lewis's generation, but the fact that we have access to so much information because of Twitter, because of Instagram, because everyone has a supercomputer in their pockets. We've heard about every single one that has happened everywhere. Tyler O'KK is a 19-year-old activist from Los Angeles who's in his second year of studying public policy at the University of Chicago. The death of Trayvon Martin, the moment he died, I don't think I've worn a hood outside of my home ever since. I remember exactly where I was when I heard about the news in Florida at Parkland. We were on a bus heading actually to a youth in government conference where we would model the California state legislature in court. And it was on that bus full of students my age that we heard that 17 students died because of a mass shooting incident at a high school. Also hearing about families being separated at the border and, and a, a myriad of different losses, right? There have been so many just little events of, of politicization and little events of reckoning that have really molded our generation into what we are now. In Tyler's junior year of high school, he was elected to be the sole student representative on the Los Angeles Unified School District Board. I wanted to uplift the voices and the issues that marginalized people in my community faced. But when he actually sat on the board his senior year and realized his vote didn't count, that he was simply in an advisory role, he decided to do something about it. He formally proposed that the school board consider expanding voting rights to 16-year-olds. The rationale was that 
At 16, we are deeply affected by decisions that are made throughout our political systems, but most directly by the decisions that are being made at our local school boards. His resolution passed, and Tyler continues to organize around statewide campaigns that expand voting rights to 16-year-olds. In fact, this November, there are three youth vote initiatives on the California ballot. The statewide effort is Proposition 18, which expands voting rights to 17-year-olds in primary or special elections if they turn 18 by the next general election. The next one is Measure G, which is a local measure in San Francisco, which would allow 16 and 17-year-old citizens to vote in municipal elections in San Francisco. Another one is also still in the Bay Area of California, and it's in Oakland, and the measure is called Measure QQ, which would extend the right to vote in school board elections to 16 and 17-year-olds in that city. Tyler believes more young people would turn out to vote if they could be involved in the election process earlier. 18 is a very transitionary time, right? It's when people move off to college, they leave home, they find new jobs, they, they start to leave their own unique mark as an independent individual. And that makes voting even more complicated, right? I'm someone who is deeply civically engaged, have every intention in voting in this election, but it took me an arm and a leg and grappling with bureaucrats just to get my ballot, my LA County ballot sent all the way to Chicago. And we believe that when we introduce voting at 16, when folks are in stable environments, 16-year-olds, juniors in high school across the country are taking U.S. history. And once we have folks vote in at least one election, but preferably two elections, the statistics show that they're more likely to be lifelong habitual voters. It allows us to really grapple with America and the process of democracy. And it's a learning experience for us, and it strengthens our democracy and makes sure that we continue to have a culture of voting in the United States, starting at 16. But for Tyler, civic engagement doesn't stop at the ballot. I will always maintain that voting is the bare minimum that you can do. Voting is something I spend a lot of time talking about, mostly because of the Vote at 16 resolution I introduced when I was on the school board, but it is by no means our pathway to liberation and is by no means our pathway to freedom. MLK said that the United States was the greatest purveyor of violence both here and abroad, but that's not something we hear often. So we can't say that we believe in liberation, we can't say that we believe in freedom for all, but our advocacy and our solutions end at voting every two years. It just does not make sense. So it's important that we understand we vote because we have to, and there's immense change that can happen within government. And we also organize outside of it because we need to and we have to. And it doesn't matter who the president is, the violence of the United States isn't going to end overnight. Coming up, where youth activism and turnout collide. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, 
fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On August 9th, 2014, Michael Brown, an unarmed 18-year-old, was shot six times by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. The response from the community was immediate. Days of protests turned into weeks. Last night again in suburban St. Louis, the scene that photographers captured looked like a police state. The state highway patrol and the National Guard swarmed the St. Louis area. Using the same tactical getup and the same weaponry we've come to expect in urban warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan, Police in Ferguson, Missouri, once again had to put down and head off violence in the streets following the shooting days ago of a young unarmed black man who was supposed to head off to college this week. But protesters and activists came too, joining the voices of the heartbroken community. Among them, DeRay McKesson. In so many ways, it feels like it was just yesterday. When the protests erupted, DeRay was 29 and working in Minneapolis as the human resources director for the city's public school system. He drove out to St. Louis that first weekend and eventually stayed, leaving his job and dedicating himself to the streets where he documented what was happening on social media. Today is the 110th day of protest. We've been out here every day fighting because we know what's happening right now is wrong and we'll continue fighting. The unrest in Ferguson set off Black Lives Matter protests all across the country and DeRay became one of the movement's most prominent voices. The thing about the movement is that it was organic. People just came outside, people saw his body and they came and people stayed and people fought. 
And I think that like as much as people want the end of hierarchy and da-da, people want this narrative that like a person started it and da-da. And I think that that narrative is really sexy, uh, but it is not true. So when we think about uh, Ferguson, it is anybody who was in St. Louis will tell you that this was really organic. There were a set of people who had outsized roles. I had a big platform. I was like sort of the town crier, but I was one of many people who had a big role to play. And like, I don't lose anything by saying that. It is true. And it changed so many of our lives. And there's this weird sort of like way that people act like the protests just like emerge out of thin air. You're like, no, there was like a whole foundation that was set in uh, set in St. Louis and in Ferguson for 400 days straight with like no money. The, if you remember, the, the press was not on our side then. I mean, it wasn't, people weren't really celebrating activists. Now it's like, now it's like everybody's an activist. Activism is sort of like mainstream. That was not the, I remember like defending everything in 2014 because the, the press was so hostile to us. DeRay is an activist, author, and host of the podcast, Pod Save the People. And he traces the work that he does today back to his early years. I ran for a rep in sixth grade to be like the sixth grade class rep. And that like put me on this path where I was like, I think I want to, I think I want to do this. And because of some student government people, I found an organization to organize with in the city and like that changed my life. So I was in student government from sixth grade to senior year in college. I like it was the most consistent thing I've ever done in my life. It's where I sort of learned what policy was and programming and how to be in meetings and what to like how to fight, like, you know, a ton of things. Hey, when I ran for president of my elementary school and won just by 11 votes, Stephen Russell spread the word that I only won by 11 votes. I said, people wonder why I'm always smiling. It's because I'm happy, happy to go to such a wonderful school. Yes, Jamestown <laughs> is a wonderful school, and I'd like to keep it that way. Anyway, it's so weird it. that I remember I that. It. But I mean, it, I, it's such a great point because getting involved in student government, it sounds like it really did give you the the building blocks for what later would be your life's calling and your career. Um, you were saying you learned about public policy. You learned how to conduct yourself in meetings. You said you learned to fight. And I was like, what? Well, I just learned, you know, it, it's interesting. It was a combination of student government and then college. And I was in student government. I was class president. I was student body president at Bowdoin. Um, I learned both how to sort of like fight institutions and press, but also how to imagine. That was sort of the gift of Bowdoin. At Bowdoin, I learned what it meant to dream big, like what it meant to like live in a world where you can move constraints out of the way, like you could ask the biggest question. And and those things have helped me immensely. So in like in the work I do now around policing and incarceration and racial justice, so much of it is like we're telling a story about a world that has not yet existed, but we believe in. And that skill is something I learned at Bowdoin. At Bowdoin, how much pushback did you get for dreaming big, for being a disruptor, for imagining a world that did not yet exist? Yeah, so it wasn't, I don't even know if I would call it pushback as much as I would, it was like I had to like help people see, I'm like, we can do this. We can totally do it. They're like, I don't know. I'm like, "Ah." But, but that's what happens, right? Is that people grow up seeing constraints. That's how you stay safe. That's how you're secure is that you're like, okay, here's where the limit is and I'm not gonna go past the limit. Here's how much money I have. I'm not gonna dream bigger than that. Here's how much space I, like the constraints actually keep people safe. So I never blame people for starting from a place of constraints. Uh, part of so much of my work is saying like, okay, I totally hear that, but what about this? Like, what do we do this? So at Bowdoin, I think I refined that. So now in the movement space, I'm like, oh, we can totally change the 
felony theft amounts, or we can ban on our grades, or we can like starting from a sense of possibility as an orientation is something I just like learned how to do and how to help people take that journey too. Do you think because the protests now are more diverse and encompass sort of more people socioeconomically, ethnically, racially, that that's why it's been celebrated in a much bigger way than the protests in Ferguson? No, I think that I think some of it was like Ferguson laid the groundwork. It was like the the Ferguson protest changes the language and da da da. I think that the hard part is that if you remember after twenty fourteen, it was like a lot of panels, right? It was like people were like, "Oh goodness, I didn't know. I need to learn." And it was a lot of learning. So it was like a million panels, a million talks, a million like it was just like a lot of that. I think by the time twenty twenty came around, people were like, "I know." They were like, I get it. They were like, okay. Uh, and and the hunger I see in 2020 is people trying to figure out what to do. In 2014, I didn't see a lot of people trying to figure out what to do. I, I, I saw a lot of people trying to make sense of what was happening, just trying to understand it. And I don't see that this time. This time I see people being like, okay, got it. Now what? Like, what do we do to fix it? I'm always mindful that a change in conversation is not a change in people's lives, right? That like the conversation is more mainstream than it's ever been. But the outcomes are literally the same, like no change. How much credit does Black Lives Matter deserve for an increase in student activism in all kinds of social justice issues? Yeah, so when I think about Black Lives Matter, I think about a movement. In the same way that when we think about the civil rights movement, it was a broad collection of people all fighting for Black people in a specific way. And I think that it is undeniable that if the protests had not begun in Ferguson in 2014, that there would not be this level of activism, that I think that there was something incredible about seeing people standing in the street that empowered other people to stand in the street and seeing it online on social media. Like, I think it was a game changer. I think that people understood that they had power. That's what the best of organizing is, right? The best of organizing is helping you realize you already had power. I can't give you power. You had it already. I can help you use it. I can help you see it and name it and marry it to policy. I can do that for you. And I think that the protests in 2014 did that for a ton of people. And then I think we just saw it continue and continue. I think that we saw a sort of a zenith of it right now and uh, in June. And I think that it wavers a little bit and I think that we'll see it again. But I think that 2014 is the beginning in so many ways. Do you think this kind of activism translates into voting? Because Historically, many of the young people who are out on the streets protesting don't turn out to vote. What is that about? Yeah, I think some of it is like the messaging, right? That like I think that we can't shame people into voting. I think that's just a bad strategy. So I, say, I think we, I, I'm I'm happy to shame people. I'm happy to do anything that gets them to vote, DeRay. Yeah, I just don't. I think that what we've seen, though, is that it doesn't get them to vote. <laughs> I think it doesn't get young people. I don't know if it might get older people. It doesn't get young people. So saying things like, if you care about the country, you'll vote. And I, and I say that as somebody who, like, the first person ever permanently banned from Twitter was banned for raising money to try and get me killed. I've been dragged out of a police department by my ankles. My phone has been hacked. I get it. All these things happen to me, and I voted. I voted every time. I didn't miss a vote. That, like, voting wasn't the thing that, like, made America kind to me. It wasn't. I also don't expect there to be one thing to do it. Voting is like one of the tools in the toolkit. I think that there's a way for people who are willing to put their life on the line, especially in this 2014 to now moment, 
where when you tell them like if you care your vote people are like if i care if i care i'll put my life on the line i did that right so i think that some of it is like the nuance with which we tell people that it's not this either or it's not like vote or hate the country or like vote or do it is vote and do all the other things right that this is not like an either or moment Early evidence from the 2020 primaries to race suggests the youth voter turnout is going to be low again. On Super Tuesday, fewer than one in five young people cast their ballots. So why the why the disconnect? Yeah, I think we'll see. You know, I think COVID's sort of a weird moment, but I think a lot of young people will vote. I think one of the things that the right does really well is that the right is always talking directly to voters, not to the elite, not to like this academic class. I think that the left is always talking to the elites. It is always talking like the MSNBC college degree crowd uh, and only talking to like voters in their living rooms in the final moment. So in this last couple of days, I've been doing a lot of outreach to black men who are like oddly leaning Trump. And it's not hard to convert them, but what I realize is like nobody's ever talked to them. That like people just assume one of the things that we learn, right, which is interesting, is that racism alone is not a disqualifier for black men for Trump, which is interesting. And the reason it's not is what they would say is that like the whole system's racist. So like, okay, he's like another racist person in a racist system. The impact of racism is actually the disqualifier. So I'm like, did you not see the kids in the cages? They're like, what kids in cages? Right? Like they literally, there's like a set of people who actually don't know the stuff that he's done. So part of it is like, how do we actually tell stories that like reinforce? They hear him and they watch Fox sometimes, but they actually don't see what he has done. So like it has been a lot of storytelling. And if there's, there's anything that I understand more intimately than I did in 2016 is like the way in, a misinformation moves and the way that these narratives become spun so that we get people on our side who are actually repeating, like, top cop, repeating all this stuff that is, like, not true, but they've heard it a million times. I've learned that it's actually not enough to be right. That, like, you actually have to be a good storyteller and be right. If you had to do a PSA to get young people to vote, what would it say? Yeah, so I would say that, like, the vote is three things. Uh, the vote is the power to hire, fire, and shape. And we want to make sure that you use all the power you have, right? That that's a part of this uh, game, that we want to make sure that you choose the right people, get rid of the bad people, and that your values are represented in the panoply of people so that we can shape an agenda that values you and will take care of you. The second is that when you think about politics, I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, I don't do politics. Da, da, da. Politics is always doing you. That the judge who decided on those sentences was probably elected. That the sheriff who enforced that eviction was probably elected. That the police chief is reporting to a person who is elected. That the laws that people are operating under, like somebody chose them. That people who we chose are making these choices that shape our lives. And we have a responsibility to make sure those are good people. And the third thing is that this is never either or. That like... This is about doing this one thing right now, but holding people to the fire as we keep going. And hopefully you'll be one of the people that we vote for one day. So we won't have to say, like, I'm disappointed in this person, I'm disappointed in this person. I will actually just already have the people who represent so much of what we believe in. Tyler OKK is a 19-year-old voting rights activist. We interviewed him for this podcast. And he said, it's a symptom of what it looks like when young people finally have candidates that they can believe in and get behind. And he was citing people like AOC, Ilhan Omar, Katie Porter, and other progressive candidates. Do you think that's what is going to motivate young people to get out there and vote when they have candidates they can really believe in? 
Absolutely. I think that some of it is like, you know, people want to see that their values are clearly represented and not have to search for them. And I think that's hard for a lot of people. I think that like there are a lot of people who are like, you know, the right is trying to kill me, but like, I don't really like the left people. Like they're like lukewarm, but you know, it is, there are so many people that look like career politicians who like, they've been in these roles for 30 years. They've been in the roles for 50, you know, they've represented the district since I was born and people are tired of that, you know? And they're certainly tired of it when like their community hasn't gotten better in any way that they can feel. And I think that we need to respond to that. That's why AOC and Omar and Katie Porter all, I think that that's why Cori Bush, that's why uh, some of the newer members in Congress resonate with people because they're at least like, you know what, you might not have done any of this political stuff before, but at least I know you got my values with you. Like, I don't have to question that. As someone who knows the power of social media very well, should our election process be more online focused in your view? No, I think that we should just make voting easier, right? It should be a holiday. I think that's easy. I think that people should be able to register same day. Like we should just take all the burden off of voting. Everybody should be able to get a mail-in ballot without without a reason. Like all of that should just be easier. That yeah, I don't, so I don't. I, I'm not convinced that the internet is secure enough right now for this. But definitely, uh, we need to make it easier. When we come back, how youth activists then and now keep the fight going. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... 
actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's gonna catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I've always felt like I'm knocking on the doors of power, like I'm shaking and rattling the knob and I'm begging to be involved. Again, here's Tyler OKK. But I think that that has always been the nature of this work. And I've always come to it with the understanding that this is what we do for our communities because the violence of poverty, the violence of police violence, the violence of climate change are all things that I'd prefer not to feel and not to impart on folks. The most important thing about young people is not that they're in the street. Once again, Cortland Cox, veteran of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC as it's known. It is that they have seen something and they've said, I am not going to tolerate this injustice anymore. Now, it's going to take them on a path, and it's taken me on the path over 60 years. It is them getting on the path. That's the inspiration. The most humbling thing that I've found in my life, I'm now 79 years old. You know, the most important thing is that we did things that are necessary but we will never do things that will be sufficient. And I tell young people that because they have to understand that this is a very long struggle. And you need these young people because they begin to imagine a world that is different, whether they're talking about environmental stuff or whether they're talking about guns or whether they're talking about race. They're able to see with their minds and create a different reality that benefits us all. I mean, that to me is the inspiring piece. If you do nothing, nothing changes for the better. Documentary filmmaker Judy Richardson is another veteran of SNCC. She co-produced the landmark 1987 PBS series, Eyes on the Prize, which documents the history of the civil rights movement. We were interviewing E.D. Nixon, who was one of the, the major folks, leaders in the Montgomery bus boycott. And I remember we were interviewing him, and at some point he said, you know, I've been working for, for this stuff all my life. He said, and I always figured I was doing it for the folks who came behind me. But then I said, you know, I want to enjoy some of this stuff myself. Okay, but that's what you got from all the folks who were older than us. There was always a sense that they might never see the change that they were working for. But that if they did nothing, nothing would change for all the folks who came behind them, or it wouldn't change for the better. So I think part of it is, is having been surrounded by those kinds of folks who had seen neighbors killed for just trying, trying to register, not even voting, for trying to register to vote. So they're used to all of these inequalities, have to fight tooth and nail just to get a little bit out. 
but they don't stop. That's what's amazing. And so I think part of the reason that all of us are still going, um, and, and I often say, you know, what's amazing to me is that because we were so young when we started, I don't know any of us who were sitting around, you know, knitting baby booties. We're not doing that, you know. Now, we may be doing that too. I shouldn't say that. But that's not all we're doing, you know, that we are still... I am surrounded by people who are my age, who are in our 70s, some in our early 80s, you know, who are still working for justice. We haven't stopped. That's that's amazing to me. <laughs> and that's that's the energy that allows us to enjoy and reap the benefits of what all of that work did, right? The fact that I can vote freely and now my fight is not making sure that African-American people have the most basic right of a citizen, but expanding it to young people and expanding it to more people. And um, it also allows me to do it with much less at stake. And that's that's what we that's what I hope to have contributed to for future generations, moving us a little bit closer towards the world that we want to see. There will be a moment where Gen Z needs to defer to the, the generation below us. There's a visionary power that young people hold, and that is something that we need to continue to follow. Young people, not a certain generation, are the moral compass of the country. And I think right now, this is our moment, and we're going to continue to develop our ideas, and I think we will take our world further than we than any other generation has. But I hope that the generation that comes after us takes us even further than how far we've gone. And that's that's the idea I like to adopt about movement and young people's role in it and also the potential that a generation brings to the table. Next week on Turnout. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. A conversation with a top Republican election lawyer on those baseless voter fraud claims. Where's the evidence? I think there's a lot of evidence, but we'll provide you with some, okay? Benjamin Ginsburg's blunt rebuke. That's next week. Okay, listeners, the election is officially around the corner. Can you believe it? Make sure you have a plan to vote if you aren't one of the tens of millions who have already done so. Go to vote.org to find out election week details in your state. And if you'd like to learn more about how to empower young people, check out rockthevote.org and powercalifornia.org. And as always, to stay on top of all my election coverage, find me on social media or subscribe to my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call. You can sign up at katiecouric.com. Turnout is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric and Courtney Litz, Supervising producers Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Eliza Costas, and Emily Pinto. Editing by Derek Clements and Lauren Hansen. Mixing by Derek Clements. Our researcher is Gabriel Loser. And special thanks to my right hand woman, Adriana Fazio. You can follow me in all my election coverage at Katie Couric. Meanwhile, yes, I'm Katie Couric. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. 
Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.